the flower of German culture, which has bloomed for 200 years, had been withering away. Its spirit has become caught up in the machine, and its crowning glory, German opera, has been cut off forever. My life's work is in ruins. In short, my life is at an end. So wrote the 80-year-old Richard Strauss after the sustained Allied bombings of Germany, and in particular Munich, of Vienna, of Dresden. For Strauss, particularly poignant because the three great opera houses of those three cities were utterly destroyed. These places which had seen the premieres of all of his most significant theatre works. His practical response to this tremendous sense of outrage and loss was Metamorphosen, a study for 23 solo strings. And I think if you look across the canon of great Western music, there is no case of a greater, more achingly intense threnody. This piece which has actually no redemption to it, there can be no future. This is the absolute end. The title Metamorphosen, he borrowed from Goethe, great German artist whose writings Strauss had with him as a constant like Bible throughout his life and particularly concentrated on in his last years. And Goethe had a very interesting definition or idea about what, what metamorphosis actually was. In a musical sense, you can imagine it would mean variation, taking an idea and then looking at it through a process of variations, how you might put it in relief, as it were. Well, Goethe's idea of metamorphosis was much more basic and organic and evolutionary in concept. Essentially, if you have a seed, you then have a flower, the flower then dies, and then you have a seed again. The great cycle of life, as it were. In itself, actually, a very Beethovenian concept. Beethoven's great music, written so often from the single idea from which all inspiration and all thought flows. So it's highly appropriate that Strauss used, consciously or unconsciously, indeed he claimed that actually it slipped out of his pen, as a model for the whole of Metamorphosen, one little kernel, one little piece of DNA, which perhaps for Strauss more than anything else was the summation of all that German culture represented. It's the main theme of the slow movement, the Marche Funebre, from Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. Now, if we just dwell with that theme for a short moment, it's in a deep, dark, rich, and at the same time quite naked C minor. It has the interval of a fourth right at the start, from the G to the C, which is absolutely key for Strauss. The rhythm, particularly that falling figure when you get yabba, baba, uh, and uh, just the whole kind of shape of it. And again, Strauss, very Beethovenian in his approach here. He doesn't necessarily just take that theme and quote it verbatim. He uses the shape of it, or the shape of essential qualities within it, to form his own tapestry 
of sound. Let me show you how metamorphosis actually starts. Very darkly in the lower strings, you get immediately the rise of the fourth in the top cello part. And this extraordinary yearning, upward-turning line in the fourth cello. Remember, we're talking about every instrument in the orchestra for this piece being a soloist. Occasionally, instruments do play in unison with each other, but so much of the time, it's about 23 voices, all essentially expressing the same core idea. So, upward-turning fourth at the very start, followed by this yearning, upwardly mobile figure in the fourth cello part, which is perhaps looking already for some kind of answer, some kind of sense to be made of the atrocity. progression down and down but then a bit of redemption I think you can hear how much he's already in Beethoven's world already absolutely in that shape that motif the model from the funeral march. Then another alternate idea, still coming from the same place, emerges in the fourth and fifth violas. Here's the falling figure. Now let me put that in context with what lies underneath it. Again, these constantly shifting harmonies, either moving together upwards or together downwards, or moving in contrary emotion. In other words, where the lower instruments are going down, say, and the upper string instruments are going up. Constant sense of shifting, searching harmony, bedding in underneath that theme. keeps with that idea and again you can hear how like it well it has the hallmarks of Beethoven about it three repeated notes so often you find that in Beethoven finding extra intensity through the very very same sonority takes the idea again and now extends it particularly using a sort of doom laden triplet figure triplets are a wonderful compositional device if you've got a basic four in a bar which this is one two three Four. And then if you put crotchets in triplets over the top of it, they sort of bend the edges of the beats. You get ya da da di da da. And these are the darkest triplets.
Here come those triplets. Finally, the violins start to emerge out of the darkness. That triplet figure you can hear is still based on the, the original Beethoven idea of di-da, di-da. Now he's just playing with the idea of a falling sequence of notes like that, but through these wondrously stretched triplet crotchets. Now I'm going to take us on just a little bit further than there. We get, often in this piece, shifts in volume which again show that the utter hopelessness, the desolation that Strauss must have been experiencing. That just as flesh is being added onto the bones of this music and it builds and it builds and then suddenly the ground is taken away from it and it goes right back. There can be no positive outcome. what I mean is a kind of constant suppression at work, taking away the sting just as perhaps it might start to become useful or cathartic. Let me show you now a further extension to this idea and the climax of this first section as it draws to a close. This piece is essentially in sonata form even though it seems to have a formlessness about it, that it's a constant proliferation of ideas, no holes, no pauses really of any sort. That being said, you get an adagio, which we've been exploring, this slow opening material, then you get a central faster section, which we'll get right into in a minute, and then a final closing adagio section. Here's the climax then to the first section.
And we're into a livelier section, marked etwas fließender, somewhat more lively. So you've got that sense of that uh, drawing to a close, that first section, gradually being elongated, stretched out, the tension increasing through which there must be some kind of relief. And this etwas fließender section gives us exactly that. It's made up of two contrasting elements. Firstly, what you hear in the cello, violas, and the eighth violin, which is a variation on that doom-laden triplet figure we were looking at just now. The second element is uh, curiously close to the second subject of Beethoven's funeral march from the Eroica Symphony, which in itself is only really derived from the principal idea. Again, with Beethoven, as with Strauss here, everything comes back to the same place. This is the second subject of the Eroica slow movement as it occurs in its original form. So again, you've got the interval of a fourth, the arm palm, the start of that, so integral to the whole formal design for Beethoven and here for Strauss, but also that upward turning figure in the second part of it, which is exactly what he uses, if you like, as perhaps an unconscious model on which to base this motif, which first violin, fourth cello, and second cello have. Just those players. So you get this sense, if we put it all together, this lively section begins. Strauss, the consummate master of contrast. The first section was heady, rich, almost indigestible. It's also very Goethe-esque, I suppose, because there's a constant metamorphosis here at work. Metamorphosis of life, renewal, regrowth, perhaps picking yourself up. You can hear him playing there, little bits of duetting going on between two of the violins and also the first cello. Following that, the real tempestuous stuff starts. He moves forward, we pull back. He moves forward, we pull back. It's clawing away at his heart. Thank you. 
firmly in the world of E major now, which is the tonal center for this section of the piece, the outward adagios, both at the beginning and at the end, being absolutely drenched in C minor. There's an added sense of angst, which the first bass adds shortly after this, again, so close to what material the bass has in the opening bars of the slow movement of Eroica. I'll show you what the bass has at the beginning of Beethoven's work. And hear how it is here. Put that in context. Some temporary feeling of catharsis, perhaps, but still not in any sense a peak. Strauss is such a master of dramatic concentration. All his disparate thoughts and ideas must be given their head, must be given room to express themselves before the ultimate outpouring. And where there was drag in the da 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 di da 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 figure, that is now actually propelling us forwards. Having been a kind of backward glancing idea, it's now driving us further and further to the abyss. And you can hear here all the elements of the piece so far. It is a compositional tour de force. just how restless, restless the music is. There are no answers. Slightly later on, we get an almost crazy outburst or articulation of rage. Mad, feverish semiquavers in uh, certain of the instruments, the first viola, the fourth and sixth violins, full of fourths, incidentally, and a kind of toxic chromaticism. There's an emotional rawness, which is very unusual in the civilized world of Strauss's later years, where generally speaking, he was looking at moving problems aside, or at least finding contrasts and other points of view, as kind of a genteelness about so much of the composition of his last years. This music stands out like a sore thumb. <laughs>
and there perhaps you get some apology for the outburst which has just occurred. Now he's piling on the heat, moving to the end of his middle section, and you'll hear shortly after we start this kind of elastic band. It's like he's pulling it to the maximum tension. Maybe it's going to snap, or it will propel us into a completely new, absolutely sort of enraged fast tempo, and that's what it does. <laughs> There it is, the ultimate outbreak. You might say his absolute fury at what he described as the 12-year reign of bestiality under the greatest of criminals. It's very important to be clear that Strauss's rage wasn't against the Allies who undertook and manifested the destruction of Germany through their bombing, but rather through the corrupt regime that provoked it. Now we get the final paragraph before the last adagio section, the recapitulation, as, you were, as it were. He grinds the melodies up by semitones, pitting them against each other, D flat against D natural against E flat. This piece is like a totally overwrought improvisation in a way, worrying away at the same core ideas. He cannot leave them alone. <laughs> Here it comes, restatement of opening material. Never has C minor been bloodier or more brutal. There's that heart of Beethoven again, the crux, as Strauss saw it, of the great flower of German culture. Listen to it when it occurs just shortly thereafter. There's a bolder, colder accompaniment to it now. Perhaps we're wiser after all the shouting. wiser we may be, but what was previously an upwardly mobile, yearning, sort of looking for solutions, figure in the cello, you'll have noticed that that's now become downward turning.
going further and further into the darkness. Darkly and brutally stops the music dead there. This threnody mustn't become easy or overly fluid. And then we get the final section at the end of the final section, which you might call a postscript. It's essentially the coda of the piece. After that abrupt stop, we come back in full force. There's no likeness in that. You can see from all of this why Strauss was unable to attend the first performance of this piece. It was premiered in uh, January 1946. He attended the rehearsal on the evening before the concert and apparently took the baton and conducted splendidly, so the players said at the time, thanked the players and then left. Altogether too personal and too upsetting for him to experience in a live context. And finally, right in the closing bars of the piece, he writes in the lower cellos and the basses exactly the quotation from the funeral march of Verurka. Over the top of it, Strauss lays his melody, which becomes like a kind of a mirror to it. It's almost like Beethoven's theme is to Strauss's, like its external soul at long last. We've been waiting the whole piece for this. He writes in the score underneath that quotation from Beethoven, in memoriam, you might say it's his epitaph on the catastrophe of Germany's cultural and physical disintegration. The inconsolable sense of, of sadness and pain that Strauss felt at the horror of loss, ultimately, of man's inhumanity to man. Time for some questions. We mostly associate the orchestration of Strauss with the Wagnerian touch. Was this the first time he copied Beethoven? I think Beethoven was present in Strauss's music throughout his life. It might have been 
masked in terms of style and opulence and sheer orchestral, orchestrational brilliance uh, by what Strauss himself achieved. And of course he was working in a very different era when orchestras were much bigger beasts and were capable of so much more texture, colour, definition, possibility than Beethoven had at his disposal. That being said, I think ultimately there's never a place where Mozart isn't far away in Strauss and he was one of the great Mozartian conductors during his life. Uh, and Beethoven as well. Indeed, Strauss once said somewhat arrogantly that he believed only he and Beethoven, out of all the great composers, were the ones who knew how to add humanity into the music they wrote. And as Michael Kennedy, Strauss's great biographer, has pointed out, even the greatest composers allow, are allowed blind spots. <laughs> are there clues as to why he chose this particular and peculiar medium for this monumental element in his life? I'm really glad you've asked that question. I mean, after all, the quotation that I began this session with refers to, ultimately, his sense of, of, of despair at, the, at the, the cutting off of German opera, the great, almost world-beating tradition of German opera for the previous 200 years. And I think, probably, he had to write this piece for instruments rather than voices because it would have been too painful to go there and how indeed would he ever have found text which would have summed up his sense of isolation and, and, and loss. I think that's why he chose the medium of strings which at their best are the closest thing one gets to the human voice arguably and it is as a result a tremendously poignant song without words. Um, would you describe this late music of Strauss as neoclassical? There is, as I was saying earlier, a, a phenomenal Mozartian grace to Strauss' music that one bar flows inexorably out of the last. It never feels like a design that he's imposed. And then, of course, there's Beethoven. So he's, he's taking a variety of models, all of which are part of his musical heritage and, of course, have become, particularly by this point in his life, aged 80, absolutely fundamental to his core existence. So he could no more write a neoclassical piece, in inverted commas, than he could be an Olympic swimmer, I shouldn't think. It was all just naturally there. Stravinsky, on, by contrast, you could say, and this isn't a criticism of Stravinsky, it's just a different way, that he put on neoclassicism rather like a sharp suit. <laughs> Let us now perform for you with my orchestra excellent device, Richard Strauss's Metamorphosen, a study for 23 solo strings. <laughs> 